Greetings and welcome to the latest episode of Si Yo Fuera Una Canción, If I Were a Song. We are a community-based podcast and radio show in which people of Santa Ana, California, tell us in their own words about the music that means the most to them. I'm Elizabeth Le Guin, your program host and director of this project. The project is based on my conviction that we people in the modern urban world need to learn to listen to one another, and that music and all it brings us is the perfect place to begin. My name is David Castaneda, music researcher here for the Si Yo Fuera Una Canción podcast. I'm so happy to be a part of this project, using my scholarly training and my performance experience to bring you the stories, music, and lived experiences of those living right here in Santa Ana. Maciel and I found one another seated around the eternal bonfire of poetry, where words and music ignite one another, and the flames of their mutual passion dance in fantastic forms, always changing, always illuminating. Who can say where words end and music begins? A well-spoken phrase in its moment can become a music that makes the soul resonate as if it were a cello. A well-played melody in its moment can transmit a more apt wisdom than the keenest philosophical discourse. This is what we're all about in the end. Our whole project, all the interviews we've done, have moved in and out between the flickering light of the poetic fire and the shadows that surround it. Together, we've tried to distinguish how it is that a song, a voice, a lyric can grab us, move us, transport us, uproot us, overwhelm us, and finally, connect us all over again. Maciel has dedicated her life to this mysterious, marvelous process, and today she helps move us a little closer to the warmth that it lends us. The text of this interview was translated from the Spanish by Jen Orenstein. The interviewee's part was reenacted in English by the voice actress Terry Richter. Well, all right, Maciel, welcome to our show. It's a special honor for me to have you here because I've been hunting you down for at least six months trying to schedule an interview with you. You're working on some really interesting projects here in Santa Ana. And on a personal note, it gives me the chance to get to know you better. So I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Can you tell us your full name, your age and pronouns, if you like, and a little bit about how it is that you find yourself living and working in the Santa Ana area at this time? Yes. Thanks a lot, Elizabeth, for inviting me to be on your show. It's an honor and a privilege for me to be here to share a bit about what we've been doing for around two and a half years now, or maybe three at the Centro Cultural de Mexico, as you well know. And okay, we have uh, various projects going on there. We started with a reading circle and literature classes, and it was a large project. There were around 25 up to 30 participants, and we had various guests who would connect with us at the Centro through Zoom. And this, was bef this was before the pandemic, so we'd already begun using Zoom before COVID. We would use it to make video calls with writers and poets, primarily in, in Mexico, where I was focused at the time. And everything started from there. During the pandemic, that framework guided us and gave us the space to, well, to keep creating and we could get together through our discussions of literature. And later, we expanded to include other projects. For example, our poetry project, as you already know. Um, I began to connect with poets from all over the world and from as far away as Bangladesh. I just met a poet from Bangladesh 
who is the first to translate Gabriel Garcia Marquez into Bengali. <laughs> You're kidding me. Oh, yes, the first translator. In fact, he lives in San Diego. And, well, we've had the opportunity to make connections. Last year, we announced our first call for poetry submissions written by women, which was a complete success. That was in August of last year, if I'm not mistaken. And we had 80 poets from around the world, including local poets as well. Mm. It was a three-day festival of poetry written by women with poetry readings in the mornings and evenings. It was co-organized by Josefina Maravilla, another Centro volunteer, who also attended our poetry circle. And we've been following the work of all these poets, or the ones I've had the opportunity to follow. And we've been publishing their work and inviting them to talks, interviewing them. Because I also work with the Los Angeles Poets Society, another not-for-profit Chicanx activist group in Los Angeles, founded by Juan Cardenas and, and Jessica Wilson, who are also Chicanx poets. And then I'm also working right now with Indira Isel Torres Cruz, a poet from Colima, Mexico. She also has a project, another collective that promotes poetry, not just written by women, but by anybody, anyone that approaches her. She also conducts interviews, and with her came the idea for Revista Raices, or Roots magazine. Revista Raices is through the Centro as well, and it's a distribution platform, primarily for poetry, but... We've also published stories, essays, and, and to celebrate Women's Day on March 8th, we had another meetup, but this time we utilized the Centro in a hybrid format. It was a gathering of 43 women, including local Chicana poets, and a Salvadorian Guatemalan poet from Los Angeles. Also, a local poet who is currently living in Los Angeles but was born in Guatemala, and women from all over the world, Chile, Colombia, Brazil... Also, work written in indigenous languages. Mayahuel Schwani and the master Etel Xochichotzin, who are now language poets. So, as you can see, Elizabeth, it's a project that attempts to be diverse, but that aims to embrace all voices. In fact, this morning I was speaking with Indira about when we distributed Revista Raices in another space called Metafora, about how many times as a writer, as writers, you go looking for spaces that you want to open a window for you, right? Hmm. And when they don't publish your work, I think the world loses something, right? It loses a window in, a window into a way to hear your voice, to find out who you are. And, well, it was with that intention, or with that objective, that we created Revista Raices, and also to continue to promote reading in the community hoping to reach people's eyes. <laughs> yeah. So it's more like a, a chain or a network of interconnected projects, right? I mean, you've mentioned, well, several. So at this point, I have a really simple question for you. Perhaps it's a silly question, but sometimes silly questions get interesting answers. <laughs> so here goes. Why poetry? What is its importance? You, you dedicate the better part of your days and your energy to poetry. Why is that? Yes. Well, I suppose the technical part of my answer would be that it's a short text most of the time. But it's more, hmm, writing poetry is complex, however, because of its length. Hmm. 
A poem is like a, a, a capsule containing emotions and metaphors that have to be deciphered. It's much deeper than a short story or a narrative piece. Uh, a narrative could be three, four, fifteen pages long, and the style is quite different. And what speaks to me the loudest is the metaphorical part, <clears throat> the symbolic, emotive part. It's like, mm. in poetry, the word itself makes its meaning manifest, right? Mm. Uh Poetry is the act of materializing that which vibrates. Uh, the sound materializing that in words and in that way creating consciousness through emotions. Mm. So, in fact, it's because of this, because it's a short text, because it's deep, because, because it needs to be disentangled, because it's symbolic. I feel that poetry has many complex layers to it, and that's why I focus on poetry, because it has the strongest impact on me. It has a strong emotional charge. Mm, 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 yeah, yeah. You can connect more strongly with the people who listen to you. There's an oral aspect of poetry, because when you read it aloud, it's a collective exercise. I mean, you can gather ten poets, people come to listen, and... And if just one word has an impact on someone, then the poetry has achieved its goal. So that's why my work is centered on poetry. Yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. That oral element of poetry stands out to me. I mean, 500 years ago, listening to literature was the norm. Literature was a performance art played out in real time. It was an art form you listened to. And that's changed a lot over the last four or 500 years. Now, generally, when we talk about literature, we think of a, a text, right? Something written on a page, something silent. But it wasn't like that before. And, and poetry is precisely the oral part of literature that has survived. And as a musician and a historian, this is very interesting to me. Exactly, Elizabeth. You are exactly right. The aspect of sound, of orality... For example, the bards, right? They'd go from town to town, singing out the news or simply singing, you know, to entertain. So that performative aspect is an important part of poetry, too. And, you know, it's really fascinating how that plays out in Latin American poetry. I mean, in Mexico, in Chile, poetry in Latin America, South America... And the poetry that I can use here as a reference is Chicanic's poetry. I feel that Chicanic's poetry has an even more performative touch. We see it with Matt Cedillo, Iris de Anda. There's a really different quality to it. It's also got a bit of the popular culture mixed in, such as slam poetry, right? Mm -hmm. And I, mm -hmm. I feel that Latin American poetry is usually distinct from that in its style. So... Making connections in these projects that we've already mentioned has allowed us to get to know both sides, right? That mix. It's a mixture, getting to know Chaconic's poetry on this side and Latin American poetry as well, no? Because there's an exchange of styles, even in how one might go about writing a book. So it's seeing that difference, uh, the difference of geographic location, of people, of accents, of sound, of feel. It's, it's quite 
marvelous. It's marvelous because <laughs> you realize, like you said, the way it changes depending on the geographical location, the reader, that person's context, the poets, right? And there are so many factors. Yes. And, well, the whole relationship between media, as you said, the, the way of speaking, the accent, the rhythm, the meter, the different languages you mentioned, all of this forms part of the message. And on top of that, I also find the fact that it happens in real time to be quite fascinating, because poetry recited aloud has a lot in common, of course, with music. And what I mean by that, that poetry essentially exists in a space between narrative, reading, and music. And it, it participates a bit with each one. Or at least, I mean, would you agree with that? Oh, yes, absolutely I would. Yeah. In fact, there is poetry in prose. But something I think distinguishes poetry is the sound, right? The sound. Sound is really important. Sound and rhythm matter a lot in poetry. Whereas with prose, I don't think that's an important factor. But with poetry, it certainly is. That's why there's, for example, in Son Jarocho, right? The decima. Or then in music, you also have these factors of rhythm, sound, and cadence. And in narrative writing, you don't necessarily have to have that rhythm. Uh, but, well, it, it manifests itself in a different way, I think. The rhythm is buried beneath the words. That might be one way to put it. And, well, this would be an ideal moment to transition into talking about your first song, but I want to ask you a couple more quick questions before we talk about the music that you've brought to your interview. A little bit about your personal history, if you don't mind. How did you arrive at this study of poetry? What has been your personal journey? Sure, of course. Um well, I came to California when I was eight years old. I'm the daughter of migrant parents who brought me to the United States as a little girl. So I went to primary school at Pio Pico Elementary in Santa Ana, and then to Carr, and then to high school. So mm -hmm. I've been in California since primary school. Mm -hmm. I was always interested in literature, language, words, especially in both languages, in English and Spanish. And I believe I had excellent teachers, language teachers from primary school all the way up to university. Ah, uh, that's great. In some way, I, I feel that words have served as a refuge for me, you know, when I was a child. Well, there's a term for it now, uh, right? Bullying. But mm. I feel that I was always excluded for being different from the other girls. I was always different. And I found a refuge in reading, in literature. And ever since then, I, there, were, there were various contests at school, for example. And I'd win them, poetry contests. <laughs> <laughs> I recall that the Bowers Museum had a Frida Kahlo contest. And I, I think I was 13 years old. And I won it. So literature has always called me since I was a little girl. And also, I was anxious to learn the language, you know, because at eight years old in English, too, achieving bilingualism in English and Spanish led me to poetry. I remember reading Ezra Pound. <laughs> and I love the poem Howl by Allen Ginsberg. There was a poem I liked from Howl. <laughs> so when I started out, I had notebooks full of writing. When I was an adolescent, I always published in the school magazines at Saddleback High School. 
I liked publishing my poems, my writing. So, yeah, that's how it went as I was growing up. In fact, my first books at Pio Pico, it was also a poem I wrote that won the contest. Um, Those were my first books in elementary school where I had these little contests that left their mark on me and led me to the language arts. That's, I guess that's how it all began. And, you know, I stopped writing for a long time. I only took it back up again three years ago at the Centro. Mm, I took up writing again, completed my master's degree, and then I had a little more time, a little more freedom to do projects like these community projects like I'm working on now. And, well, that's how it all began again three years ago. Hmm. What a lovely story. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm very moved by this idea of words as a refuge and also the idea of words as a bridge. Without words, well-chosen, resonant words, what do we really have? So, yeah, I really agree with your point of view. Wow. Well, thank you, Marcel. Five hundred years ago, the idea of poetry as something silent, read in solitude from a mute page, would have seemed an absurdity, for poetry existed to be heard, recited, often sung, shared in common. It was a supremely social art. The ancient bards that Maciel mentions, the troubadours and professional readers, made the news known from street corners and recited the epic verse romances that are the direct ancestors of today's corridos. Or they delivered installments of novels and stories to passers-by. Cervantes' Quixote was written to be shared in this way, and so, 300 years later, were the novels of Charles Dickens. Advances in general literacy in the last 200 years have resulted in a gradual visualization and textualization in the modern age. The inventions of things like television, mobile telephones, the internet and cellular networks, all of them in the hands of capitalist privatization, have accelerated this process to bring us to the bizarre point of walking around in public, each person plugged into their mini-screen, reading or looking at administered data in silence, and scarcely looking at one another, much less listening to one another. However, the many historical traditions of public oral poetry survive, and they flourish notably in the traditional and alternative arts of many Latin American and Spanish-speaking countries. To the poetic compilations of Mexican son, the schools for improvising decimas in Cuba, the payadas of Argentina and Uruguay, Let's add the tremendous foment of conferences, journals, workshops, and readings being organized by Chicanix activist poets in Southern California. Among them, of course, the initiatives of today's interviewee. We're still a ways from becoming robots. Why don't we now start to talk about what is, in effect, poetry? but set to music, and that would be your first song, which expresses or represents where you're from. So could you present your song to our listeners and perhaps speak a bit about why it is that you chose it to reflect this question of where are you from? Well, my first song is by Mercedes Sosa, Yo Vingo a Ofrecer Mi Corazón, or I Come to Offer My Heart, sung by her, of course. And well, to say where I'm from... 
my geographical or symbolic location is that it's I I come from this place in which words exist as a refuge for me. We talked about how words um, create this symbolic place where I can exist freely. And when I focus on writing something, I feel that the whole world around me doesn't exist. It kind of all vanishes. I'm in a pure and personal place of my creation. Because anytime you write about something, you write from within, going outward, right? In poetry, you're externalizing your feelings, externalizing your stories or the stories of others, right? Yo vengo a ofrecer mi corazón. So when you write, when you do that, you offer something from within you. You offer your center to the audience, right? You also give hope because all, all is not lost. It's the first line of that song. All is not lost. There is hope. I come to offer my center, my heart, my emotions, despite the fact that there's so much violence in the world, right? And she says, the river swept away so much blood. In spite of all this violence and all the chaos we've been through in these last two years, there is still refuge in things like poetry, in words, in art, plastic art, ceramics, yoga. Why not? <laughs> There's so many spaces you can inhabit. So I inhabit poetry from the center, from the heart. And it's not easy. The song goes, it won't be so easy. Uh, I know what's happening. It won't be so simple. It's not simple. I, I know so many people who don't make art their life, you know, that have other things they're working on. Nevertheless, they do what fulfills their souls, right? And that's very important, to do what fulfills your soul, <clears throat> what makes you happy, what you would do without being paid for it, right? It's a very idealistic thought, but I still believe in those idealistic thoughts and feelings. Uh, long live idealism, I say. <laughs> that's right. And well, I'll continue with this song. She says, how to Open the chest and remove the soul, right? Uh, a loving gash. And so when you share what you do, well, you open your chest and take out your soul, in spite of the fact that sometimes the world leaves a gash and hurts you. No, you keep doing what you love in spite of the fact that sometimes the world doesn't understand the importance of a well-spoken word, of a well-written word. Sometimes that hurts too, but... It doesn't make you give up the hope to continue creating spaces for people to come, right? For example, to listen, to learn as a collective, and and yes, that's that's it. Mm. Well, great. Let's listen to it. <laughs> It has a super slow rhythm. And I notice that uh, physically, for example, 
the rhythm of my heart, of my breathing, my whole body relaxes. So how does this effect, which I imagine it's an intended effect on the part of the composer, on the part of Mercedes Sosa, all the musicians, how does this relaxing effect help the, the sense of the poetry? Well, I think that there are moments where one has flashes of peace. There are other moments of rage where you boil. <laughs> but in my case, I feel closer to the peaceful vibrational part, I think. There are moments where that takes me to other, I'd say to other dimensions. It, it makes me more intuitive, opens a greater perception. And now I feel that this opens a portal, you know? It opens a portal in people, in, in the stomach and in the eye, right? Which is also part of our intellect, our heart and our body. So when you're in a state of relaxation, you can think better, stay focused on what you're saying and what you're doing. In this state of peace, you can find not, not just light because it, it's part light and part darkness, but a higher consciousness, let's say. And you have radiate light with your words, with your poetry. So I believe that in this way it helps to be relaxed, although we might be vibrating on different frequencies. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. What an interesting and beautiful answer. Yeah, it, it, it's about being open, right? The openness that comes through a song, a piece of music. And, and through the sounds themselves, the sounds of the, of the keyboard, of the th synthesizer. In this song, there's sounds from a space beyond this planet. And, and that's how openness comes, little by little. Oh, I like your answer a lot. I, I believe that a song like this one could act as a form of, uh, of assistance to make quite deep internal changes. And, and with the meaning of the words, even more so. Yes, that's right. I feel that words, the world is always, um, well, it all vibrates. Everything is in motion. The earth is always in motion. Mm -hmm. So our words, our actions are all in this constant vibrational state. And when your vibrations are, um, let's say you're angry and your words are full of rage, that resonates outward in some form into our environment, right? Well, for example, the war happening now, right? The war in Ukraine, that has the power to affect us on an energetic level. So when you use words to cleanse, when I write a poem about war or against war, I'm combating these chaotic vibrations and finding a balance. Hmm. Now, if I can do it, Imagine if four or five hundred poets are writing the same way, trying to balance out or equalize the chaotic vibrations with harmonic words. So I think it's, it equalizes the darkness. Words have light. And if you combat darkness with light, you can balance out the harm. Mm. In effect, words have concrete strength in the real world. That's right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this, this conversation brings something up with me, I, I must confess. I, I haven't 
I haven't thought about these things in a long time. Because, well, because of the strong pull of the daily, what we call daily life, there's this very, very common idea that in the end, words aren't real. They're just representations. And that reality is only confirmed through actions. And the more violent those actions are, the more real they are. It's it's a very common view of life. Too common. For example, listening to the radio, reading the news, bit by bit, this very destructive way of seeing how we live right now penetrates my thinking. And, well, your words, your perspective, remind me of the importance, the, the real power of words, of thought, and, and like you say, of a, a thoughtful and positive vibration. So, thank you. I'm grateful to you. And thank you for asking these questions, for thinking about them, and for sharing, no? For sharing this interview that soon we'll all be able to listen to. And well, and well, yeah, sharing. <laughs> That's great. That's great. One of the most well-known songs of the Nueva Canción movement is Yo Vengo a Ofrecer Mi Corazón. This song exemplifies the movement in many ways, but especially so in the poetic lyrics first written by Fito Paez. This movement started in the 1930s as an effort to create and reflect the national culture through music and poetry. El Pueblo Argentino, the Argentine people and culture, often takes center stage in this movement, placing a romantic importance on culture and lived experience. Musically, the movement places importance on providing the most freedom possible to the artist, encouraging influences from many different musical styles. The Nueva Canción movement would see its highest popularity during the 1960s, and the compositions that came from this movement becoming popular across Latin America. Some of the most important artists of this movement were Mercedes Sosa, Armando Tejada Gómez, Manuel Oscar Matus, and Fito Paez. Mercedes Sosa would become one of the most famous Argentine artists, rising to international fame for her unique and emotive performances and lyrics. Fito Rodolfo Paez, who originally wrote Yo Vengo a Ofrecer Mi Corazón in 1985, is another artist who would become well-known across Latin America through the movement, using his music to bring awareness to poverty and social injustices. And so just to wrap up our conversation about your first song, explain a bit more to me, if you can or want to, how is it that you come from this place, this place expressed in the song of holding your heart in your hands to offer and offer and offer? She says it so many times in the song, no? And that repetition has its own strength. I come to offer my heart. I come to offer my heart. How does that connect with your origins? with where you're from? Well, I, I feel that the heart, uh, the symbol, as we said at the beginning, it's, well, the center. It's the center, right? It's the energetic center that I share. And I think that it's through this repetition, because, well, at any place, in any country in the world, I believe it happens. Like you say, life happens. This chaos happens. And then often we close ourselves off and close ourselves off, right? And you go looking for personal gain. It doesn't matter if somebody else died. As long as nobody in my family died, it's fine. A woman was beaten. It doesn't matter to me because I wasn't the one beaten. So 
There's this indifference. Um, I find indifference to be painful. Everything that's happening in the world hurts me. And to offer your heart is to open it. It's to say, um, look, look at what's happening. I mean, are you going to form this sort of protective shell around us that keeps us from caring, from feeling what happens to our brothers and sisters around us? And I think that's part of the system. The system wants us to be robotic, unfeeling. With the news, like you said, through sensationalism, through lack of education, in any way possible, it wants us to be indifferent. So the repetition of, I come to offer my heart, I feel that it's an anthem to combat indifference. To say, you know that your poem matters to me, that your work matters to me, your artistic creation matters to me. And to open minds, open hearts, open people's very centers, and for people to see the importance of the arts, of literature, of poetry, of narrative, of whatever is an artistic form of expression, it's important. Why? Well, I'll say it again, because it opens us up and equalizes the darkness around us. Or at least that's my perspective. That's the space I'm coming from, right? (laughs) I get it. I get it. So combating indifference by saying, I love you. Saying love can conquer the love of another, right? What you do matters to me, and I carry it in my heart, right? Not just to say it out loud, but also to really feel it and transmit it. That any little thing someone does, even a handicraft, right? It matters. It's important. And it should be valued. So that's where I'm coming from. All right. And with those beautiful and resonant words, let's leave this wonderful song now. Thank you for sharing it. And let's move on to the second song you chose, the one that represents your hopes for the future. Will you give us a quick introduction to the song, and then we'll have a listen? Of course. The second song is Barro Tal Vez, or Clay Perhaps, composed by Luis Alberto Spinetta. It came out in 82, and it's originally a a rock song in Spanish, but there are many, much like my other song that Mercedes Sosa sings, there are many versions. And one of the ones that I like, um, I don't have a copy of it, but it's performed by a woman with a cello, I believe. And she's playing it, and she's dressed in red, and it's magnificent. I mean, she plays it wonderfully. The lyrics themselves are wonderful, but this woman's performance really has an impact on me. The colors she uses. I mean, the sound is magnificent. So, well, it's one of my favorites, too. Si no canto lo que siento Me voy a morir por dentro He de gritarle a los vientos hasta reventar Aunque solo quede tiempo en mi lugar Si quiero me toco el alma Candelaria Buaso is a young Argentinian who sings jazz and plays the contrabass. She was catapulted to fame on an Argentinian talent show 
elegiros la música en tus manos, that is, chosen music in your hands. She did it with nothing less than her interpretation of Spinetta's famous song, Barro Tal Vez. With the multi-instrumentalist Paolo Carrizo, Buaso is part of the duo Cande y Paolo. They released their first self-titled album in 2021. Luis Alberto Spinetta, prolific songwriter and dynamic performer known as El Flaco, the skinny guy, was one of the great icons of Argentinian rock. He died in 2012. The title Barro Tal Vez more or less translates to Maybe Clay, a snippet of the mysterious poetry and haunting affect of this, one of his best-known songs. Fascinating song. One question about the title, Barro Tal Vez, which is a line in the poem. It means clay, perhaps. So after saying, ya me estoy volviendo canción, or I'm already turning into song, then he sings clay, perhaps. And what do you think? What does it mean? In, in your opinion, because I'm not too sure about my own theory. Well, we were talking about sound and song, right? The sound of poetry, the sound of song, and clay, the origin, right? Sound as the origin. And, and when I speak, when I speak, when we talk about clay, we're talking about that, right? That we are dust, and how from dust and from sound and this mixture of movement and rhythm, you can create, right? So the origin of creation is us, humanity. As Vicente Widobro said, we are little gods and goddesses who can create because we, um, I want to use the word origin, right? We are made in the image and likeness of an origin. So, so we are little creators. And I think that, well, that's my interpretation. Because we're part, you know, for example, in the Kabbalah, there are the different levels of the tree of life, the sefirot, which are different energetic levels, and they're all part of the same tree, right? <laughs> and the fact that this song talks about a tree, the bark of a tree that is opened by the blow of an axe, right? The tree opens. The tree of the sephirot, that is, of the spheres, also called the tree of life, is a central symbol in the great ancient Jewish mystical system known as the Kabbalah. The tree bears ten spheres, each one of them corresponding to a mode of knowing God. And so it returns. In my interpretation, it's a cyclical song, circular and cyclical, talking about the origin of consciousness and of a greater consciousness that humans have not yet achieved because of rage or anger or things that happen to us in our lives that embitter us. Well, there's that other part of us 
which is energy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You've gone way, way deeper than my theory, which was just that ancient kind of biblical idea of the body itself as clay, how a thing is, as it said, made of dust, of clay, a thing without life, without soul. But it's interesting because this moment of barro tal vez, it comes twice in the song, and each time the song pauses, the rhythm's flow stops, right? It's like this small, suspenseful moment, right? within the song. It stands out. Hmm, that's right. And I think there's a part where, like you said, there's that pause, that that pause where she says, I'm turning into song, right? Like, Mm. there's an axe that cuts this tree's bark, and then it ends with um, where the river will dry up to fall silent. So the poet, or the one talking, the lyrical speaker, the lyrical I finishes. Mm, They finish, but then they resurface in this way that merges with the whole, right? So that's what I meant when I spoke about the greater consciousness. So that's where there's that pause, which I'm also intrigued by. Mm. And from there, hope. The reason why you chose this song, right? It's a a type of rebirth. Um, So Another thing that got my attention while doing a bit of research about the artist, because the, the composer of the song, because he's, well, he's quite famous, at least in Argentina, known as El Flaco, or the skinny guy, <laughs> for his thin frame. But this has to do with the date this song was released. Uh, like you said, it was, it was written in 1982, and that's right in the middle of the Argentinian dictatorship. So... I know that there's a conflict within the song. There there are some rather violent images in there, exploding, screaming into the wind, the, the axe that cuts the tree bark, and so on. But the form of singing, it's sung so softly, at first you can barely hear it. And the whole song has this fluidity and this softness. doesn't sound violent at all. So, so to me, to my ear, there's like this internal conflict between the images, some of, some of the images in the lyrics, and the musical style. And so I asked myself if it had something to do with the moment in which the song was written. It, it was a very, very difficult time for Argentinians. And I, I don't know if you've thought about it from that angle or if I'm going off on some peculiar track. Or What do you think? Well, no, I, I think you're right. Sometimes it really helps to contextualize songs or any other work of literature and I think so. You're absolutely right that there is conflicting imagery. The song is violent at times and could be connected to the violence being experienced by the Argentinian people, right? Of the repression, mm, the lack of freedom of expression. Like he says, uh, I'm going to express myself. I'm, I'm going to sing freely to the wind, even though that will lead to my death, right? Hmm. It makes me think also of Lorca. During the Spanish Civil War, the censorship. Mm-hmm. Ah, uh, yes. And all of that. Mm, I don't know. Now we can speak of performance in theater as well, no? Writers like Buero Vallejo, who wrote during the Spanish Civil War and were censored and in some way were persecuted as well, right? So I think that you are right. And yes, of course, no work of literature can be completely free of its historical context. Yeah. Yeah, of course not. 
Federico García Lorca, born in 1898, and Antonio Huero Vallejo, born in 1916, were two of the generations of Spanish poets, artists, and musicians whose fate it was to live through the Spanish civil conflicts of the 20th century. From the perspective of the struggles for liberty and autonomy in the Americas, it can be easy to forget the fact that Spain, the one-time great colonial power, passed through this terrible period. Decades of disturbances and repressions led to civil war between 1936 and 1939, with 36 more years of fascist dictatorship afterwards. Spain only achieved democracy in 1975, much later than many of its former colonies. What does it mean to be a poet under a fascist regime, in which any open expression of resistance, of intellectual independence, even of doubt, can become a death sentence? It's worth thinking about this here and now, for oppression and censorship are never that far away. Garcia Lorca would not survive the general violence. He was murdered in 1936. Huero Vallejo did live to see his country exit the dictatorship, dying in 1986. Like that of his artist contemporaries, his work relies on metaphor and allegory to say what's necessary without saying it. And, well, it's a lesson, once again, in, in that it's always important to not only listen to the music, to not only listen to the words, but to listen to the combination of the two, which holds a significance deeper than the, the sum of its parts. I would say that's the sign of a wonderful song. Yes. Yes, it's one of my favorites. Both of these songs that I've shared are, are songs I listen to all the time. I have to listen to them every day. They speak to me. They speak to the soul. So, yeah, touchstone, as they say, right? Like something you have to connect with regularly to maintain your health, the health of your spirit. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And well, thank you, Maciel, for sharing such thoughtful, deep songs and for sharing your thoughts about poetry and music. You've got me thinking about things in a way that I'd, I'd almost forgotten over time. So I appreciate that a lot. Uh, I appreciate the space and I appreciate you for being a wonderful guide and also for sharing your thoughts and having a dialogue and building knowledge between us. I really value these spaces. Mm. And, f and for me as well, this evening has brought me a lot of light and learning. <laughs> I'll carry it with me. I'll remember today for the rest of my life because well, we spoke about wonderful things, internal things, and I value that a lot. I'll always treasure that, Elizabeth. <laughs> I embrace you. Well, many thanks from the bottom of my heart. Wow. I'm always here. And, well, we'll keep in constant contact. I hope so. I hope so. I, I hope this is the start of a, a well, a, <laughs> a poetic friendship. <laughs> of course. Right? I really appreciate your time and your, your lovely energy. Yeah. Would you like to know more? On our website at ciofuera.org, you can find lyrics to the songs we discuss, our blog about the issues of history, culture, and politics that come up around every song, links for listeners who might want to pursue a theme further, and some very cool imagery. You'll also find playlists of all the songs from all the interviews to date, and our special staff-curated playlist as well. We invite your comments or questions. 
Contact us at our website or participate in the Cio Fuera conversation on social media. We're out there on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And then there's just plain old word of mouth. If you like our show, do please tell your friends and your families to give it a listen. And do please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll bring you a new interview every two weeks on Friday mornings. Julia Alanis, Cynthia Marcel de la Torre, and Wesley McClintock are our sound engineers. Zoe Broussard and Laura Diaz hold down the marketing. David Castaneda is music researcher. Deaneira Garcia and Alex Dolvan make production possible. We are a not-for-profit venture currently and gratefully funded by the John Paul Simon Guggenheim Foundation. For now, and until the next interview, keep listening to one another. I'm Elizabeth Le Guin, and this is Si Yo Fuera Una Canción, If I Were a Song. Si yo fuera una canción Sonarían por las calles, las montañas y los valles Mi orgullo y mi pasión ¿Quién soy yo de corazón? Soy una ola, soy una onda Una vibración que ronda por el universo vivo Y sonando soy testigo a nuestra unidad más honda